Welcome to Journey to the Centre of Food. My name is Jay Taylor and I'll be your host for this adventure, along with our font of all foodie facts, James Winter. Hello. And on today's show, we are going to be cooking the impossible as we try to figure out what T-Rex might have tasted like. We're going to be inducting our first kitchen gadget into our new useless kitchen gadget hall of fame. And we're going to be welcoming a very special guest who will be revealing an amazing archaeological discovery of what people at Stonehenge once ate thousands of years ago. So without further ado, all aboard for a journey to the centre of food. Now, for the sharp-eared amongst you out there, you may have noticed a rather large Michelin-starred hole in our lineup today. Isn't that right, James? That's right. That's right. Our, our no, notorious, our, our victorious, <laughs> infamous, infamous uh, leader of, of, of all things, Heston Bunthal, is, is, has left us for a bit to go off on a, well, an adventure. Um, we can't say where or what, but uh, he's uh, devoting his attention just to some other projects at the moment. So... Uh, we wish him well and obviously hope he'll be back soon. But in the meantime, we'll, we'll do our best. Yeah, he's given us the keys to the submarine. And oh as we were, as we are, you know, we, we are very honoured and, and pleased to be welcomed into your lives. As we know, when you're cooking in the kitchens or you're commuting or wherever it is you're taking us with you. So we are going to hopefully keep doing exactly what we've been doing, taking trips deep inside amazing food stories and coming up with as many interesting food-based facts and things that we can possibly find for you, which is exactly what we're going to be doing today. And on each show, we're going to be hopefully welcoming in a really interesting range of guests. And our first guest this time is a archaeologist from the Royal Agricultural University, someone I know very well, who is splendid and knows lots of amazing things which we're going to be discussing today. Ed Simons, how are you this How are you today, sir? I'm uh, very well, thriving, thriving. <laughs> thriving. Now, you're obviously an archaeologist with many, many, many archaeological feathers in your cap, but you have delved into the world of food and how we lived and ate and cooked many times, haven't you? That's an area that you've looked at and come up with remarkable findings in. Well, yeah, I, I'm primarily, I'm a buildings archaeologist. So I look at standing buildings in the way that below-ground archaeologists look <laughs> below the ground. Um but that partly years of working in palaces and castles with kitchens brought me into the world of food. Um, and uh, I'm particularly interested in cooking it or even better getting somebody else to cook it and eating it. Uh, and it gives you that beautiful connection with the past uh, that you don't get just by reading about it. So, so yeah, I have a, a really big interest in historic food and what to do with it, which is mainly consuming it, of course. Splendid. Now, shortly or a bit later, we're going to be taking a trip back about 83 million years to try and discover what T-Rex may have tasted like. But before that, it'd be brilliant to dive into the work that you've been doing or have done on Stonehenge and specifically what was eaten there and how it was cooked. Can you give us some background to this whole project, how you got involved in it and, and what you've done with it, basically? Well, yeah, this project began a, a few years ago when we actually did we were, did a project at Stonehenge itself, thanks to English Heritage, and we cooked a lot of Neolithic food. And it happened at the same time that there were there had been a big research project by the uh, University College London at Durrington Walls, which fed us lots of information. And there was a big research project that was a, that was part related to that by. Uh, academics from the University of York and the University of Cardiff, amongst other places. And they were looking at consuming prehistory, it was called. 
And uh, I came in with Mark Meltonville, who's the wonderful historical uh, historical cook, cook of historical things. And <laughs> I brought in, I'm not a prehistorian in the world of archaeology. We're quite divided by subject. But I brought in Emily Edwards, who's a wonderful prehistorian, whose main interest is in Neolithic pots and what you do with them. And together, uh, we, we had a go at actually uh, finding out what the food was, preparing it, and of course, eating it and forcing it on others. So, so set me in time then. You said prehistory. When, when are we? When are we now travelling to? Where are we cooking in terms of time of humans? Well, a time of humans. It's very modern. So, <laughs> very modern indeed. It's only four and a half thousand years ago. So, it's the same period we were looking at when Stonehenge is in use for a very, very long time. This is the period when the big, the Stonehenge you know now with the big stones, the triathlons on top of other stones, when all that was built. So, the, this, is, this is feasting food. What they seem to have found at Derrington Walls is the remains of people having feasts, and they're probably the builders of Stonehenge. So oh, get wow. rid of this idea of people in fur knickers being whipped. I know that's something that's <laughs> often in your head, Jay. Remove that from your head. This is not they. This is people who are going there and they're being well fed and looked after and building Stonehenge because it's a great thing. So we were looking at that food in particular. Well, remarkable. So the people making it, like you said, this is not people being forced to make it. They are being employed through good grub to do it. Seemingly not, yeah. And part of it is, you know, it's it's luxury. You 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 have a feast. You have, and like, if you look at oh, I don't know, medieval food, the idea of beef eaters. You're fed lots of meat. A beef eater is, hey, I work for the king. I eat a lot of meat. Mm. Uh, it's the same, well, possibly the same thing in prehistory. You're doing a job. You're being fed a load of beef. I think it's it's a thing we have in England, in Britain. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's a, the idea. You're doing something good for the clever people, and you get fed loads of beef. So still Ed, like it. Can, can I ask you, do you get a sense of the, the kind of number, the volume of the numbers of people that would have been involved in building this from the amount of uh, sort of um, artefacts and things you're finding? Are there quite a large amount of, of remains left and, and, and evidence? Did you find a lot oh, of Oh, yeah. Uh, at Donington Walls, they've excavated effectively a, a almost a small town, uh, which is specifically seems to have been for the people building the stones, used in for a very long time. Lots and lots of little houses. And they're proper houses, you know, proper sort of roofed houses, don't think hut. Um, and they're, they're living there for a long time. It's not the same people, possibly. It's possibly groups of people coming and doing their duty, you know, for a season and then going away. But, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big enterprise. So how do you figure out what people in this place ate four and a half thousand years ago? What are you finding to give you this evidence? Is it, is it old bits of food or are you using bones? <laughs> what, what, how does it work? Oh, 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 teeth from animals you can do isotope analysis and you can work out where the animal spent its early life uh, if you get pottery you can look at lipids in the pots fats that have soaked into the pot which will tell you whether it was milk in it or meat or vegetables what kind of things you can get pots with charred remains in um, so things are burnt in the pot somebody you know goes 
oh, the pot's full of burnt stuff, check it out. Um, we eagerly will look over, the, over through that and try and work out what it is. Animal bones, you can see how things were butchered, how they're, you know, butchery marks from knives on, on um, from flint knives on things. All sorts of layers of information, environmental information, eco facts. Should I keep listing? There's a lot. <laughs> do you go down to the kind of bacterial level do you look for evidence of, of sort of microbes and things at this, at this point to try and date it in some way not not microbes but there are people that look at pollen i mean i don't do this as i say it's, it's nice being an archaeologist that knows other archaeologists who will do this for you but yeah you know if you look at pollen on a site you can tell exactly what the environment was like what the plants are you know what's around um yeah you can reconstruct a whole sort of environment it's often weird not what you imagine Hmm. So what? So what? If I'm if I'm not not furnicked chap working on Stonehenge, <laughs> being fed, hmm. what am I eating? What have you found that that would that was being feasted upon? So at Stonehenge in particular, they're eating a lot of cattle and pigs, but they're feasting. They're having meat, and uh, so we looked at. You would imagine, I think as well that this stuff. What do you imagine their food would be like? What do you think? prehistoric food would be like rubbish gruel uh, yeah. some seeds some nuts yeah uh, just not, roasted not, meat on a stick yeah yeah this yeah, is not much of it this is this is what people always imagine this is this is what sort of set me out to do this in the first place because i've done a lot of sort of food interpretation at various sites and when you get to the prehistoric people seem to give up and it's this idea of some you know people in miserable fur knickers sort of proffering a bowl of mush going mm, mush thank you that's great I, I hope the romans get here soon but, yeah, but they they're modern humans they you know they're living a very different lifestyle but yeah we created stews and things because we we know from analysis of lipids and things and from the way meat is butchered that there'll probably stews but the, the big thing that we've discovered, and this is a really important, earth-shattering uh, archaeological discovery, was that the stuff was nice. So the, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We made delicious things. So we roasted whole pigs. Uh, we A lot of the pig bones you find are jointed and burned at the end. So, you know, they're cutting big, big pieces of meat. And how do you think you roast them without any metal? Oh, I guess, do you build... You can't build a wooden structure over it, can you? <laughs> no. Because that'll just burn. <laughs> Wouldn't be a great idea. Well, you sort of can. What we did with the big joints of meat is we put, you find loads of charred, burnt bits of hazel stick in um, a lot of places. So we, we split hazel like you do when you're making a fence, a bit of writhing, you're familiar with it. And if you use that, the meat doesn't slip off it because it's D-shaped, D-section sort of stick of hazel. And you stick it at 45 degrees. So, so in some sites, you've got these holes next to the fire which are at 45 degrees, and the meat will happily cook and you can turn it. So you're effectively cooking it over. So you, you, a lot of it is you rake the fire, you have a good fire, you keep raking the coals around, as you would with like a medieval chimney or something like that. You know, you're cooking on embers a lot. You can get up to, we cooked a whole pig and everyone was going, how are you going to do that? And we put big sticks through it, spiky sticks, and they were basically handled so we could turn it over we put it on a good charcoal bed, which was about six, 700 degrees. And of course, the fat just went boomph, huge amount of flame. Everyone was going, it's going to burn. And we went, no, it's going to be fine. Over five hours, we, every hour or so, we moved it over. Every time we turned it over using the big sticks, it just went boomph. After five hours, you would imagine this charred, huge mass of pig 
yeah would be pretty grim but of mm. course it's just the outside that chars the inside was soft succulent it just showed you how pork should taste this wow. this this is what pork should be it was beautiful stuff gorgeous and did 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 you season it in some way? Do you think there was some element of sort of gastronomy going on at this point? Do you think they had salt or, or anything, anything to add flavour of some sort? Oh, yeah, yeah, you have to have salt, but it's that funny idea of adding flavour. So we created recipes for the public based on the kind of stuff we were doing, but we were cooking por- uh, pork and making simple honey sauces out of blackberry and honey and stuff like that. Um, and... You know, we were, the public weren't allowed to eat it, of course, in case they get po- got poisoned. But we enjoyed giving it to the academics to give them a real taste of the kind of stuff they'd been researching. And I think a lot of them were really quite surprised at how delicious it was. So it's weird. It's sort of stripped down food, but it's so cooked nicely. It's actually very, very tasty. What is it when you're doing this kind of thing? Because I think what's the, the, the exciting and interesting thing about what you're talking about here is taking theories and actually redoing them and suddenly it, it comes to life what beyond the fact that they ate nice food did it give you any mm. insights into the mind of the people what it would be like being there like you said there was a village there but it did it give you any because eating someone else's food did it give you any extra thoughts about them oh it, it gives you yeah with this one particularly it gave huge insights because you know even i think we at the beginning presumed the bowl of mush and um it was things like using we were using these huge pots like big bucket shaped pots called grooveware and um we use them in the way people all over the world use big pots we cook some stuff in them we also tip them on their side and use them as ovens and uh, i was making we had emma wheat which is one of the uh flowers you know sort of emma flour that um uh, we were and i just thought let's make chapatis we know so little we know they had bread it was great. We were using these pots as tandoors, putting a, a wooden oh, wow. lid on, slapping things in. And what was really interesting was people from all over the world. Stonehenge gets visitors from all over the world. Everybody got it. It was food. These people were pastoralists. They're not farming much. They're looking after cows, pigs, things like that. They're, you know, they're moving around a lot. And a lot of people really got it. And you often don't get that with later historical food. Every, it was something very... Mm, this is good, you know, this works. So it was an insight into the people then, but it was for people from all over the world, which was great. And is there any evidence of, of I suppose it doesn't stand the test of time, but sort of vegetable matter and things, they're not, they don't survive, do they? I mean, is there any element of what else well, we that, beyond meat? That's one, of the, that's one of the really interesting questions. Well, that's what I was sort of trying to get at by asking you, what do you think they ate? We sort of impose our ideas of the past on the past. So I think... A lot of people would imagine in the Neolithic, they're going to be eating lots of fish, lots of wild stuff. They're not. It's really restricted. People after them in the Bronze Age start to, but there's virtually no evidence of eating wild food. There's some, some deer, some fish bones don't survive well anyway, but very, very little. These people are the first people that aren't hunter-gatherers, and you almost get this feeling they're going, yeah, we don't do that anymore. We we've got meat and we've got we've got flour, and we're going to eat bread, and meat, and we're going to drink milk, and they almost turn their so all this lovely stuff that people get at Stonehenge going oh they were so close to nature. It's almost the opposite. <laughs> they don't want anything to do with nature. Nature's bad. It's where the people before them lived, and they don't want it. They just want a, 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 their version of a Greg's, don't they? With a, with a sausage <laughs> yeah. roll. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're very happy. <laughs> 
that's pretty much it <laughs> yes that's it but that's fun isn't it when you start thinking of it like that it's, instead of having this sort of reverence we all have for history actually like you're saying yeah. is well why would we eat that it's horrible we're going to eat this because it's really nice and this yeah. is what we want to have and we're going to cook it the best we can with it, it's what bizarre in, in the bronze age so afterwards people start eating stuff from the natural environment more again but in the neolithic there's some evidence for it but it's not huge. One thing they have from the natural environment a lot is hazel, uh, ha- uh, hazelnuts, really into hazelnuts. Now, you can make flour out of hazelnuts, and it's delicious. You can make all sorts of things about it. But this was our other great discovery, and this, this is an earth-shattering discovery. Uh, we roasted hazelnuts in our pot on the side that we were using like a tandoor, and um, we scraped them out using a shoulder, shoulder bone to scrape out because you don't have any metal tools. So how do you scrape something out of a red-hot oh, pot? Oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Scraped it out. And uh, we went around and we went up to um, uh, the academics and I, uh, I had a bowl of hazelnuts and a bowl of roasted hazelnuts. So all over lots of Neolithic sites, all over Western Europe, you get tons of charred hazelnuts, hazelnuts that have been burnt. And all I did was get them to eat a hazelnut and they go, it's a hazelnut. And then you get them to eat a charred hazelnut and they go, mmm. Because they're <laughs> delicious, absolutely delicious. But there's no easy way. Once they're charred as well, you can grind them up for flour. You can do all sorts of things with them. But there's no easy way in an academic paper of writing, they did this because it's, mmm. <laughs> <laughs> but it really was absolutely delicious. Thoroughly so recommend it. Would they have had to bring all this food with them? Or was there, were you saying there's evidence of a big settlement with farms and, and if they've got wheat and all sorts of they growing things nearby? Is there ever, did it, how far did it, they bring this food? Well, uh, again, this is one of the things with Stonehenge. There's evidence. It's a bit debated, but the, the, there's evidence that they're bringing stuff from all over Britain. Some of the cattle possibly even came from southern Scotland. So this isn't the normal situation in most settlement how, sites. How do they do that? They came from southern Scotland. How Dro- drove the cattle, but possibly there's some kind of you know there's you're you're donating stuff to an important place. Um, so how do they even know about it up there? Again, this is that presumption they were they didn't know what they were doing. But this idea, how because they're, they're interconnected, it? they're part of a civilization that goes all the way from scandinavia down to the southern tip of portugal this sort of megalithic mega world it's a huge <laughs> megalithic mega world megalithic mega world too <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's it's a big civilization it's interconnected there are burials um of pe- there are people again this thing with isotope analysis of teeth there are people in the Neolithic and the early Bronze Age world who are from this sort of uh, who are coming from Eastern Europe, some uh, even from North Africa, Egypt. It's interconnected. It's 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 a civilization. It, it's not a few villages going. Oh, uh, we've got a stone circle next door. We'll uh, we'll do one of them. Do you want know, to come it, around? It, it, yeah, come around. We'll have a have a bit of a party. It, it, it's a sophisticated world, but it's a really strange one. It's a difficult one. You know, uh, I'm not a prehistorian. I'm a different kind of archaeologist. It's one of the reasons it, it fascinates mm. me because it's just so weird. I'm fascinated with this idea of droving. I know it's a slight aside here, but yeah, mm. we'll just go. Oh, they just drove the cattle. If I gave you a hundred geese and said, "Go on, get yeah. them to the other side of London," how the hell? Droving is, oh, droving is great. When um, uh, Totally different subject, of course. Uh, Trigarran in, uh, in uh, West Wales, uh, they used to, it's where, one of the places where drove, the big drove routes met in the 18th and 19th century, and they would get loads of geese there, and um, you would ride a horse and travel along the old droveways, and you would 
tar the feet of the geese like shoes so their feet would survive the journey. You'd walk them into London and you'd stay in pubs on the route which spoke Welsh. There was a network of them and um, there's one and I it's where you are, James. Oh, okay, yeah. Bray. Yeah, there's one very near there that was Welsh-speaking uh, pub. And anyway, you, you, you take your animals, you're riding a pony. When you get to London, you sell the pony and then you put the saddle on the back of one of your dogs, allegedly. <laughs> and the dog goes home. You, know, you, you walk home and get the next load. So, it, it, yeah, but this droving probably has been going on for millennia. Um, and, and there's little hints of it. It's not just 18th, 19th century. It goes on forever and ever because some bits of the country produce lots of animals, some bits produce lots of vegetables, and you just travel around, you, yeah. The idea of tarring the feet, I yeah. presume you make them walk through it, but they're not going to be happy I've about that, are they? never tried it. <laughs> well, now, and now, I know what we're doing this weekend, then. Let's go tar some geese. It's, it's a little bit of experimental archaeology I wouldn't want to get caught doing. Um, <laughs> wow. This is, okay, well, this is a, 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 another question about the, the Stonehenge dining experience, because I'm, I'm quite fancy going back there now. I'm curious about who's doing the cooking. I know that's a leap of mm. knowledge because that's not necessarily something you can get from evidence. But how, do, you, do you have any sense or any guess from your perspective of who is this a, a chef, so to speak, or a cook, or is this individual? Um, What's the? Uh, well, it takes skill, of course, to cook for large groups of people. So I was very glad we had Mark Meltzer with us. Of course, is used to cooking on a big open fire for large groups of people. So during the main event we did at Stonehenge, and we've done a lot of sort of experimental work since, but Emily was talking to the public a lot of the time, and Mark and I were playing with the fire. And <laughs> we managed, we reckoned we had 12 of these big bucket-sized pots and some smaller pots and odds and ends and a lot of pigs to cook and some bits of beef and stuff. We had flat stones to cook on as well, which were really effective. But... I reckoned, and this was a guesstimate, we could have cooked with the two of us for a couple of hundred people in a morning. Wow. It was really, wow. really efficient. And it's part of these really? things of a lot of people, when they're doing archaeological experiments, do them very, very small. You know, uh, I, I, look, I've made this. And again, they proffer the tiny bowl with the morsel in. Uh, sometimes it's worth doing it big. And we did. We had a lot of stuff to cook. And we could do it. We were just processing it. And this is mainly through Mark's skill and knowledge with what to do with a big fire. Lots of moving coals around, lots of keeping everything going. But it, it wasn't hugely labor intensive. And that included prep time as well. Um, so, yeah, you can make a feast for a couple of hundred people in, in a morning, we reckon. Goodness me. I, I remember once we were in Amman doing some of the filming and we went to see some of the locals out in the middle of nowhere. I think they were like shepherds. Um, mm. And they had they, they had a goat there they were cooking for us. It was literally green. It was not mm. thing you necessarily wanted to eat. But they cooked it on a, a fire of stones. And all they did was when they wanted to make it slightly cooler, they put some more stones on. They waited to make it slightly hotter. They took some stones off. Yeah. And it looked incredibly primitive until you saw it. And you were like, that's brilliant. That's more controllable than my oven. Yeah. Because it, it was just... It really works. works. Or putting heated stones in water, so in a wooden trough, we, 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 that's our next game big wooden trough heated uh, stones in it so you get these in the Bronze Age you get these burnt mounds full of burnt bits of stone and um, you heat cobbles up in a fire and of course they start exploding <laughs> going pizz, bing, bang, that when you chuck them in water so you're chucking red uh, you can cook in skins like this as well the Irish were doing it in uh, as a sort of feasting thing up until the 16th century um, and it's controllable 
because you've got this huge sort of massive chest of boiling water and you just it depends how many stones you chuck in how hot it gets it's great fun and they go fizz bang and you get little bits of stone flying at eye heights all over the place <laughs> what who could enjoy anything more it's yeah, great such, such a well, male is. way to cook that isn't it <laughs> yeah all these people with their barbecues going yeah i'm cooking a manly it's barbecue interesting. when nah, i was when i was nothing. sort of doing a bit of research <laughs> for, for for this tonight I, I've, been, I've often come across a recipe for a stone or pebble soup in in later folklore where, where there's a story of someone setting mm. up a uh, a cauldron or a pot in the centre of a village and, and sort of basically, I suppose, tricking the villagers to come and contribute to their cooking pot by by saying, oh, we're making stone soup, but it needs a little bit of garnish or seasoning. Would you mind giving something? And eventually the whole village would come and put vegetables and, and things with more flavour, I guess, in and they'd all share it together. But it's, 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 a, it's a kind of bit of, 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 I think, Central European folklore about, about stone soups and pebble soups where you find recipes all over the internet if you start Googling. So I wondered, when you started <laughs> saying this, I thought, of course, this, is, this is, goes back much further. It's, it's pro- stone soup. It, it's probably a memory. It's mm. like the magic porridge pot. You know, the, the old folk, uh, children's tale of the magic porridge pot. That's, it goes back, you look at legends What's like the... What's the magic porridge pot? What's the magic porridge pot? I haven't heard that. This idea... Do you know It's an old sort of no, children's story. No, I had story a very, that, very limited childhood. They're generally <laughs> a pretty similar theme that you have a pot that always gives porridge until somebody does something naughty and it runs out of porridge. And it's um, this story goes back... It's in medieval Welsh romances like the Mabinogion and things like that. And it goes back and back and back. Uh, and it's probably a memory of the importance of cauldrons and cooking things communally. And it might be the same with the stone soup thing. You know, it's 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 memory. Mm. We remember we remember good meals. Really do. I mean, it's, wow. Well, okay, what? If, that was a fabulous journey back into history. Then Ed, that was amazing. And I have to say, going from the original position of oh god, I wouldn't want to have eaten there, to suddenly going, I would love to go back now to that village buy Stonehenge and have some of their grub because it sounds amazing. In fact, it sounds very trendy. Well, you'd have to do some work for it, though. I, I think, uh, and if you're out in the sticks, not there uh, in Neolithic world, you might not get such a delicious feast. But, yes. <laughs> you know, I fancy like, being like a religious leader. That'll do me. Yeah, you'd be great at Do they eat around the stones? Is there evidence of sort of actual roasting and cooking and eating around the stones themselves? Or is this kind of just around the area? Mm. Around the area they're living is what it seems to have happened, yeah. So the stones are always revered, were they? They wouldn't. You wouldn't sort of go and have a. You wouldn't go and eat in the middle. Why of those, not? Well, I, I don't. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but I suppose they probably didn't have reverence. They just built them. It was like you know the shard. Well, like, right. I, I think with the effort that they put into it, they probably had some meaning. <laughs> it weren't just f- fancy tableware but yeah I, I don't think you could sort of just you know well I don't know perhaps you could but I, you, perhaps not just emerging in them you know with a sort of uh, your hazelnut chapati with a bit of porking oh no it's nice here uh, you know <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah I think they're going to have some significance okay so now I'm going to take us even further back in time then we're going to try a little feature called Cooking the Impossible and we're going to go back about 83 million years and probably destroy any professional reputation that Ed has now by making him just make guesses. No, this is all right. This is paleontology. I, I'm an archaeologist, so I'm, I'm, I'm allowed. Yeah, I don't, know. I don't know nothing about this, so that's all right. Well, I thought, wouldn't it be fun to ask the sort of silly question that we mm. probably wouldn't normally ask? But as you know, I'm very happy to ask the silly question. Uh, I thought it would be amazing to know what, what would T-Rex taste like? Mm. What if we could catch one and cook it 
what it would be like. So I've been doing a bit of research into this. First of all, obviously, what was T-Rex? Tyrannosaurus Rex, which we know, probably the most iconic and uh, impressive dinosaur, obviously, immortalised in, in films like Jurassic Park, but also every it seems now every child must have a pair of pajamas with Tyrannosaurus Rexes on them at all at all times up to the age of about five. Um, although interestingly, lots of new facts coming about about the T Rex. Uh, a friend of mine made a really interesting show with Chris Packham all about new discoveries that they're finding, and one of the ones was that T Rexes were actually probably more than likely covered in uh, brightly covered feathers. Uh, second thing, there was no roaring. Ooh. There was probably a bit of a squawk like a magpie, but there was none of this roar, roaring business. So it's suddenly becoming slightly less intimidating. And I was thinking, well, okay, first of all, we got to catch one of the things, right? Uh, or maybe we could farm them. I don't know how easy that would be, but I just wanted to ask, how do you, how do you initially think we'd go about capturing our T-Rex for dinner just to, well just before we go any further i just want to point out that whether it's got a squawk and feathers it's still 12 meters high with razor sharp teeth so i think it's still pretty intimidating even if it had a top hat and glasses on to be honest so i think you should approach them with with care i mean when you well when it turns you- out we could get away from it, it uh, apparently again it's this thing about size when things get bigger as we discovered making big ice creams they don't double in size they cube in size so they're now thinking that t-rexes we could actually outrun them and you'd probably be motivated to if one was after you you could turn quicker a human could run faster than t-rex because they are so vast they actually would never really go more than the jogging speed because they're carrying such weight on 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 muscles Mm. and things so i think i don't know how we're going to take one down Uh, i don't think he's going to get us they think isn't good enough for me. I'm, I, 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 I don't want to be. I don't want to be trapped in the Cretaceous with. Oh, they thought. No, go on, no. then, take the spear. They think. Go on, take the spear. You'll be fine. <laughs> so they are quicker than me. So I guess your first problem. Let's let's assume we've caught one, killed it. It's there. It's lying on the ground. Your your, your first task is to break this beast down, and I guess try and find where the edible parts of it are, and. My thought was was one of two directions, right? This is this was when you you mentioned this one. I've had and, and eaten. I've never cooked one actually, but sort of alligator and those kind of things before. They're not they're not you know particularly my taste, but for a while they were in supermarkets. And obviously, all the edible parts of the crocodile alligator species are in the tail, um, which was quite gelatinous and fatty, really. Um, it's not but, great, is it? I've tried it. It's it's, mm. it's a miserable dining. They say it's like pork, but it's nonsense. It's not. Well, I think I think the rule is it tastes like whatever it's been fed on. That was what I was told. So otherwise, they just taste of swamp water. Um, but you could, you know, I mean, you get these kind of steaks out of a tail, a bit like a kind of um, swordfish steak, and you can char, you know, just grill it and and do, you know, it's it's a pretty solid sort of mass. So you'd still need to. To, to build one of Ed's great big frame, D-shaped frames somehow, massive, with a whole hazel tree, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and cook it that way. Bit roasting a T-Rex. And a, a, a bulldozer to move it around. Yeah. <laughs> well, I Googled, what is uh, T-Rex's most uh, sort of um, commonest living relative? And of course, we know that. That is the mighty chicken. Right, so exactly, uh, so, exactly it. Because it, it was considered, it was considered for a long time that actually, because of crocodiles being a reptilian relative of of dinosaurs, they thought it would taste like crocodile. But that's not what the latest thinking is. Because um, 
obviously the 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 uh, until very late development, the body of a bird looks more like a dinosaur than it does look like a bird. And um, this is a very cool study, which I think Ed, you should get funding for your universities to try. It, Yale and Harvard, uh, they were actually able to alter chicken embryos to grow the snouts of velociraptors rather than beaks. Which is pretty cool. That's right. well, you, well, that's that's very worthwhile. Um, I think <laughs> if you're thinking about butchering something as big as that, the only comparison I can think of is flensing, which was another one of my interests when I used to work in Antarctica of places. You've got it. Flensing is where you uh, take the skin off a whale, so you have a big, ultra sharp flensing knife on a long stick, and you walk around on the top of the whale with spiky boots, and you cut it off in squares. So presumably your T-Rex has got a fairly hard skin, so you've got to slice that off. And then you've probably got to do something like chainsaw butchery, which is challenging and not very good if you don't like splinters in your food. But uh, the best way would be <laughs> would be flensing. So, yeah, we'd get some spiky boots. And uh, down in the museum on South Georgia, they've got some flensing knives they might be able to lend you. And, um, yeah, you've got to actually walk around on the beast to chop it up. It's a bit gruesome. Lord. So we it's think like it might have fridge. Yeah, well, yes. But do you think we think it might have sort of chicken-like flesh? Is that the idea? Is that what you're... While it has bird-like flesh, it's not chicken in its makeup. Because as you said earlier on, uh, a, a creature is very much the sort of product of what it eats. And it's obviously a carnivore. So it's eating other creatures, which apparently gives it a very gamey taste. And they've said, that actually... Uh, it tastes. It would have tasted like hawk. Now, obviously, we haven't eaten hawk. Mm, delicious. <laughs> <laughs> but hawk apparently tastes like a very gamey version of the brown meat of a turkey. So, so if we went, if it's gamey, yeah. do you have to hang it? If so, how and where? <laughs> <laughs> from, a, from a diplodocus or one of the other. <laughs> you have to get an even bigger dinosaur. <laughs> So I think you'd have, to, you'd have to bring it forward in time and sort of hang it on the Harland and Wolf crane or something yeah. in Belfast. <laughs> just, just say the locals, don't worry about it. It's an experiment. But the idea that after all that, it just tastes like the brown meat at, chick at Christmas that nobody really wants to eat would be a little bit disappointing, especially if you've gone to all the problem of walking around it, chopping it up oh, and mm. not being eaten. Would his funny little arms be more tender like on poultry? Mm. Like with the wing meat? Well, not used very much. Yeah. That's an interesting idea. Mm. I want to give it a go now. <laughs> <laughs> they did, they did, they, there was someone who looked into a, um, which one would taste the best then if you had to have a dinosaur. Uh, and they obviously said it would come from a herbivore one uh, and it one with a tendency to move persistently rather than mm -hmm. swift bursts of motion. So basically, we're looking for a dinosaur cow. And they said it is the Omnithominimosaurus. I think that's how you say it. Omnithominimosaurus. Omni minimum, <laughs> Om, omniominiosaur, something like that. Asaurus. Right. Uh, it, it's a group of ostrich-like dinosaurs who are part of the uh, theropoda suborder, which obviously is one of my favourite suborders of dinosaurs, mm. from which modern birds evolved. Um, so they were warm-blooded. They were very active, uh, and uh, 
uh, had no teeth, so ate lots of plant matter. And cop out. No, a complete cop out. That's just looking for the most palatable <laughs> thing. No, you, you need to <laughs> challenge yourself and go, one of those preposterous little sort of things with the balls on the end of their tail that look like little armoured tank things on fat legs. One of them. Go for something oh, really, yeah. Oh, yeah, the, really the bracket, brachiosaur or something. Yes, yeah, really, something yeah. unappetising looking and <laughs> vicious. Go for that. So as we always say to our listeners at this point, please do get in touch with all your dinosaur cooking tips. We'd love to hear which dinosaurs you'd most like. I like the idea of taking down a Diplodocus and giving a go. Now that's a butchery challenge. Mm. Trying to cut that out. That'll keep the whole village going for a few years. I do have one more little thing to add to this. this, Obviously, I I don't know uh, what it would taste like or, 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 you know, all those answers necessarily, but I think I might have found somebody that might have been able to cook it. I don't know if you've heard of this. uh, There's a certain chef from... from I suppose 1870 in in France, who's called Alexandre Charon, whose whose legacy remains in a particular version of uh, Bernays sauce with tomatoes, but he was also notorious for being uh, a chef in Paris, running a restaurant called Voisin during the siege of Paris in sort of 1870, and this was a point when. The walls of Paris were surrounded by the Prussian army um, and, and the sort of Napoleon III had been defeated and basically Paris was the last remaining part of France that hadn't been taken over. And so inside the walls of Paris, people were starving, eating anything that they could get hold of from rats and cats and fleas and probably each other, I don't know. But inside this little bubble was was a gastronomic hotbed of, of sort of fine dining and, and you know, sort of... A luxurious dinners going on at this restaurant where the chef Choron had, had managed to procure for himself the entire contents of the Paris zoos at which time I think there were five <laughs> um, including I can't remember their names now because they're wonderful two very famous elephants um, which oh, he fit, didn't. He, oh, called Castor and Pollux. These two were notorious elephants, which were eventually eaten at a very famous Christmas time dinner. Well, actually, on the thirty-first of December in eighteen seventy. And the oh, men, the French. And the menu of this still exists on on Wikipedia. I don't know if it's how real it is. Um, where there's a whole fine list of all the different ways he cooked all the different animals. But when it gets to the elephant, yeah, the way he serves elephant is simply as a consomme. Which for me, having done before, mm. it seems, seems a, a little bit of a cop out. But you know, yeah. you've got all that meat. But then I guess you've also—I mean, you know—just for sheer butchery of this all, I don't know how many men he would have had in that kitchen and and what was going on outside. But uh, he obviously just thought, you know what, I can't do anything too much with this. I'm just going to take some of its flesh and just <laughs> boil it down. So that what might was be main course. What was oh, the main course? I think it's bear rib. Mmm. Delicious. Mm. And something with what, something <laughs> like wolf's liver or something. All served, though, with um, some very fine Romney Conti and Muto Rothschild from 1846, of course. <laughs> oh, it's, so, it's, be, it's beaten by the Russian Academy of Sciences, of course, with their uh, famous um, uh, mammoth meal, which didn't stay frozen all the way from the tundra to St. Petersburg, um, which, which apparently was a little... A little ripe when they consumed it, uh, being sort of oh, thirty God. to forty thousand years old. But yeah, it was a little bit apparently uh, interesting. But yeah, people have eaten mammoth quite a bit in the past, and it's um, it's uh, yeah not always in the best state of preservation. Oh, what oh. you see? So they remove it from the ice when they find one of it's been yeah, preserved yeah, yeah. in the ice fields. But yeah, but it's not wow. like a deep freeze. It, it it's yeah, it's it's not the same process. Um, but yeah, the uh, people have consumed mammoth quite, quite a bit. It, it, it used to be. Fe- well, yeah, it's, it's found, used to be found so often in uh, melting ice that it was often fed to dogs. But for the novelty, people have eaten it. 
So you've got a choice. Do you, I, I would go for Siege of Paris with mortar bombs falling around me, having a chef who knows what he's doing, I think, rather than the 30,000-year-old bit of stinking trunk. <laughs> <laughs> All oh, right. Well, this this episode has taken a very devious turn, and I think will immediately be uh, yes. All of our RSPCA listeners yes. have immediately departed. Um, but to finish on, we must uh, we must touch upon something that we were uh, we were venturing into last week, which was our our hall of infamy for uh, kitchen gadgets, and we talked about the sort of the good the bad and the ugly but we thought it'd be really good fun to hear about the most the most useless uh that actually exist out there and then we uh, we we came up with the idea of of basically if you could let us know your gadget and you're the first person to have, who have named it or the per- first person to have mentioned it then you will be uh we'll be given it uh well not, not, not actually physically you're going to claim it leo bamordenvale has got in touch and said just no. listening to the gadget episode the most ridiculous gadget I've ever seen was for the cake pop fad. It was a pot for keeping melted chocolate warm while you dipped the cake pops in it. Why wouldn't you just use a saucepan, he says. And the kicker, the stupid thing didn't even melt the chocolate. You had to melt the chocolate and then tip it into the pot, which uh, <laughs> which sounds like a truly useless gadget. Mm. Just a pot for holding melted chocolate. So, Leo, we're going to give you the... Uh, what was it called? The uh, cake the pop melt- pot. Cake pop pot. Cake, cake pop pot is now owned by Leo. Uh, What's his surname? Leo. Ba- well, this is on Instagram, isn't it? So Bam Mordenvale. I hope that's his name. Leo Bam Mordenvale. Oh yes, very nice, Leo. Uh, Ed, sure. any particularly useless gadgets in your world currently? Oh, it's not a gadget so much as a object of hate for me. Is the <laughs> the silver rock four plate. Silver coloured, not silver metal, then you could melt it down, turn it into something useful. Do you know the kind of thing? You get them as gifts and they have little sort of spatula type things you're supposed to chop the rock for. If I'm eating rock for, I just want to put it on some bread and shove it in my mouth. I don't want to process it on a weird, hideous plate that has engraved on it, this is for your rock for. That's, it just upsets me. I keep trying to lose it. I keep finding it. I've it never haunts. seen one. I'm Googling rapidly. Oh, it haunts my every hour. It, it's always there, hiding in the kitchen, and it will appear at me. It, it's it's uselessness is profound. <laughs> the Rockfall plate is now yours, Ed. Thank it you. will forever be known as the Ed Rockfall plate. <laughs> that is delightful. Passionate hatred for a gadget as well yes. for a plate as well. And James, you're well, brand, you're brandishing something. Well, I you know I always I have a cupboard full of his rubbishy things, but actually this one's actually I don't think this is rubbish. So it looks a bit weird and it does an odd task which you never knew was important until you see it happen. Right. So this device here is devised for one simple purpose and if it, I, I basically it's a it's a, a metal rod with a kind of I don't know how what shape a kind of half dome shape at the bottom and a ball a heavy weight on it. So you you drop that on the top there. Ah. And so, any guesses what it might do? I'm going to show you in a minute. So, Well, I think, is this uh, the thing you mentioned last week? Which well, I might do that. Eggs, so, so I have an egg cup. I'll uh, show yeah. you. And so you place your egg pointy. Oh, yes, because you mentioned this, but it sounded like some kind of voodoo, which I didn't quite well, believe. 
Well, so I came, so I'm going to try and angle this down a little. I don't know if you can see. As you yet, said, this so is great. This is great for podcasts. Yeah, so uh, James has an egg in an egg cup currently. Egg egg cup, is, right. I'm going to try and. Is that is that a fresh egg or a hard boiled egg? Well, this I had to test this earlier. <laughs> it's a fresh egg. <laughs> I don't think it works with um, soft boiled or oh, any kind of boiled egg. So basically, I came across this for a chef um, I was working with at the time called Glenn Pennell, who does a dish in his restaurant where he removes the contents of an egg and fills it with custard and then serves it in a little dome, right? So, so James has put the little little silver hat on top of the there egg go, with the, the, the pole that goes up and the balls at the top. Go on then. I'm going to do one more. Well, he's dropped the right. ball. There was no sound, but yeah, we what? have to believe it. again. Okay, right, so it's hit. Now the see. egg looks the same. Except, and I've got, a, I've got a. Literally, got, nothing's happened to this. This is very exciting. Has, it, has, it has happened, but I haven't got any nails. <laughs> here we go. Here we go. Oh, no, it doesn't have pat- No. Yeah. Was well, that what just? So, so, so you know what's happening at home. Basically, the top third of the egg or top quarter of the egg has been sliced, sliced off, off. and you lift it off. I didn't. I could have done it a third drop there just to be perfectly through. I mean, you lift it off, and then the idea is then. I guess you can either put little crest men in there, or you fill that up with something. <laughs> why? I mean, why it needed a gadget? Why? why on I earth don't know. Did you need a for that? Well, now you can look into a little serving device. So now you can serve whatever you want in oh. your your, your egg What's shop. this called? It's, what is this gadget called? I have no idea. That is the it. Egg. Is it British made? It looks like the kind of ingenious I, thing I that think, we should be very proud of. I think it could only be British made, Ed, and I think you're absolutely right. It's got all the hallmarks of some classic British engineering in there. I imagine, you know, the, you know, the garden sheds of England, sort of, you know, maybe 60 years ago, you know, were shuddering with many men trying to protect this yes. society. <laughs> I must get to the patent office immediately, Dorothy. But uh, I'll have you know, though, I bought this from a, a genuine culinary store, so uh, it wasn't How off the much? internet. I oh, shudder to ask. Oh, I, I don't know. Honestly, I can't remember. Too much. Yeah, Reassuringly probably. expensive. But now I've used it. Oh, no, it has got a mark. It has got a... It's, got, oh, it's too small for my terrible eyes. But there is a there is a little mark on there that tells you maybe... Uh, yes. I like the idea of you going in there to, to repeated shops and going, have you got a thing to remove the top quarter of an egg in a perfect line? And they'll go, oh, yes, sir. Here you go. I Here you go. You perfect. That. What does that That'd say? That'd be £300. Pounds. It says number, number two. two. That's oh, all that is. oh, so they're different <laughs> sizes. Oh, brilliant. More to collect. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow oh, uh, pl- no. please do There's keep getting in touch soul. with your useless gadgets uh, but that is all we have time for uh, this week on our new uh, journeys to the centre of food uh, Ed thank you ever so much for coming along and taking us back to Stonehenge that was a wonderful uh, treat I really enjoyed it and learnt loads <laughs> I never knew before about that that was splendid so thank you for that sir well thank you <laughs> and James a joy being on a journey with you as ever and seeing your egg top cracker in in action uh, until next week pleasure